0: You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. Good. Um, I'm going to tell you a story up front. I'm going to just talk to you for a little bit. At 26 years of age, Rudyard Kipling was enormously famous. Uh, So famous that all over England, he was hounded. You know who Kipling was, don't you? Poet, writer, wrote the book, um, Seven Seas, uh, The Day's Work, Captain's Courageous, um, The Jungle Book. Okay, all right. Y'all, I can tell we have literary folks now with us tonight. But he was so famous that he and his wife, Caroline, decided that they just had to leave London. They just had to leave England. And they came to the United States, and his wife, Caroline, was from the United States. Her family had a home up in Vermont, and they decided they were going to come and live up in Vermont. He wanted to get away uh, from all the news and the press and people who were constantly seeking him out, journalists who were wanting constantly to interview him. So he bought 11 acres of land way out in Vermont, uh, in the middle of nowhere, uh, from his brother-in-law, Beatty. Not Warren, but his name was Beatty. Um, So he bought that 11 acres. They designed a house. um, And that's where he wrote those four books that I just shared with you. That's where the Jungle Book was written. That's where Captain's Courageous uh, was written. Uh, Those four books he wrote there in Vermont, off, out in the woods, and away from everybody. And to give you an idea of how popular he was, they literally had to build in the little village that was the closest village to them, a post office because Kipling averaged 200 letters a day. Now, that's back in that day and time. Well, he bought that land from his brother-in-law, and he told his brother-in-law, what you can do is this. You can come and plant on all this acreage, all the hay you want. You can plant hay. You can harvest the hay. That'll be fine with me. Now, his wife, Caroline, could not stand her brother. There was bad blood. And she wanted a little garden, and so she decided she was going to go out to the front of the house and she was going to plant a little small vegetable garden. Well, she did that, and when her brother showed up, he saw the little garden. Now, he's got 11 acres of land. Uh, when he saw the little garden, he flew into a rage and he lit into his sister. And the two of them got into such a fuss. Now, remember, Kipling is the guy who wrote the poem, If. If you can keep your head when all men about you are losing theirs. Well, guess what? Kipling did not do what he wrote. He lost his head. He lost his mind. He and his brother-in-law got into it so badly that the next day Kipling was on a bicycle riding down the country road. His brother-in-law was coming in a buckboard with a team of horses, and he ran Kipling off the road, ran him just off the road and into the ditch in the woods. Kipling got so upset with that that he went, hired a lawyer, and brought a lawsuit against Beatty, his brother-in-law. Well, Beatty, in order to get back at Kipling, went into that nearest village, loaded up every journalist he could find, and drove them out and showed them where Rudyard Kipling was living. And the harassment started and became so bad that Kipling and Caroline had to leave Vermont and move back to England. Family feuds are terrible. Go ask the Baldwin brothers. They're they're terrible. Go read some history, the the Hatfields and the McCoys. Well, when you come to chapter 37 of Genesis, you have got a terrible, terrible family feud. Uh, It's awful. I don't know why policemen say that the most dangerous calls they get are for domestic disputes. Uh, And you have got a domestic dispute in Genesis chapter 37 uh, which is going to end up, really, in terrible tragedy. So, let me get there. Genesis chapter 37. You come back to the story now of Joseph and this family feud. You've got ten brothers who all hate and are jealous of one brother. 11 bro- there are really twelve brothers. There is one daughter that we are told of, her name... But there is one statement in the thirty seventh chapter, I believe it's the thirty seventh chapter, where it says daughters, plural. So evidently Jacob had more than just Dinah. Now we we have Dinah's name, uh, but we don't we we don't know the other girls. But he obviously had other girls. He had twelve boys. The youngest is going to be Benjamin. Benjamin and Joseph are the two full brothers uh, of uh, 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 from. Uh, Rachel, uh, Jacob's favorite wife. That's the girl that he wanted to marry in the beginning. This is where I have to go back because we didn't get to look at the life of Jacob. Uh, But you remember, Jacob worked for her for seven years, and um, his father-in-law passed off one of the sisters. We got engaged first. She has two older sisters. Honey, you could not believe the pressure that came at that point in time. Uh, those two girls got engaged and married before we did. <laughs> but we were engaged first. Anyway, you know, he had. I got to get rid of these older girls, get them on out the house. And so he passes off Leah to Jacob, and when Jacob finds out, he loses his mind. And, of course, you know, his father-in-law gives him uh, Rachel and says, Okay, you can work for me for another seven years. So, anyway... That's what's going on there. You've got this whole dysfunctional, messed-up family situation. They hated, these ten brothers hated Joseph. We're told that three times in chapter 27. They're jealous of him. They hated him because of the tunic, the coat that his father gave him. They hated him because the father, we're told in this passage, loved him more than he did all the others. And they hated him because of the dreams that he kept having and sharing with them. But now let me tell you, I'm going to give you three things personally about that. Number one, their hatred for him, I think, was personally uncalled for. Um, I don't see anything that Joseph does in any of these chapters uh, that should create the kind of hatred that these brothers had for him. That hatred in these ten brothers comes out of sin in their lives. Uh, the second thing about it is that it was unprovoked. I don't, I don't find anywhere where Joseph provokes this in his brothers. Now, I think the responsibility really lies with the father because the father was playing favorites with his kids, uh, which is what his dad did. That's what he grew up in, and that never works out. That was last week. The third thing is this. It was irreconcilable. Uh, we're told in this passage that they could not uh, they could not even speak to him uh, on friendly terms. In other words, when they all got up in the morning, they could not even say good morning to Joseph. I doubt they even grunted at him. I imagine they looked absolutely past him, and this feud just continued to grow, and the anger continued to grow. And you know, as you begin to read these first 11 verses of Genesis chapter 37, something has got to give. Something's going to explode. Something is going to happen. Now, what I want you to look at, we're going to pick it up in verse 12 and go through the rest of the chapter. And what I want you to look at tonight is this. I want you to look at the plots and the plans and the providence of God. Whenever we allow sin to lead us in life, whenever we allow sin in our life to guide us and lead us, it's going to turn our dreams into nightmares. Now, Joseph has got these dreams, but let me tell you, these brothers have a dream, and their dream is, get rid of Joseph. That's their dream. That's what they want. And uh, we're going to pick it up in verse 12, and I'm going to show you something here that's kind of striking to me. His brothers are going to go off with Jacob's flocks, and um, Jacob is going to send Joseph eventually to go look for him. So if you've got your Bibles, let's just begin to look right there. Then his brothers went to pasture their father's flock in Shechem, Now, I'm going to talk to you about Shechem a little bit because you've got to understand some of the background. If you put your finger right there and go back to chapter 34 of Genesis, Uh, Shechem is a very famous place with all of the patriarchs. With Abraham, he comes uh, to Shechem and uh, he's going to build an altar and God's going to speak to him. God's going to appear to him at Shechem. I'm going to come back to that in, in a little bit. But Shechem is an important place. It was a a city. It was a, a town that was there. And it was run by a guy whose name was Hamor who had a son named Shechem. And his son Shechem fell in love with Jacob's daughter, Dinah. In fact, let me read beginning in verse 1 of chapter 34. Now, Dinah, the daughter of Leah whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to visit the daughters of the land. She went out to see her girlfriends. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, now he's a Canaanite. All these ites are Canaanites, the Jebusites, uh, the Perizzites, um, the Hivites, all these ites in the Old Testament, they're Canaanites, uh, just different branches of Canaanites. Uh, The prince of the land, he was one of the princes of the land, saw her and took her and lay with her by force. He raped her. In other words, that's no other way to put it but that way. He abused her by raping her. He was deeply attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the girl and he spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor saying, get me this young woman for a wife. Now there's the story. Uh, That's what takes place at Shechem, by Shechem. In fact, uh, if you go over, whenever I talk to some of these um, guides and some of these uh, uh, religious teachers in Israel, uh, one of the things that they will say about this is that um, Shechem, in speaking of the boy representing the city, that Shechem raped Dinah, and then Simeon and Levi and the other sons are going to turn around, and they are going, in a sense, to rape Shechem. Uh, You're going to see what's going to happen there. What takes place is this. These brothers find out that their sister has been raped, and they are furious. They're infuriated. They fly into a rage. And two of these boys are really hot about it, Simeon and Levi. Kind of interesting that those are the two that do this. Now, they hatch out a, and plan and plot what they can do to those men of Shechem. And I won't go through that whole story. It's worth reading. But in essence, uh, they go in and they wipe out all the men of Shechem. And while they're wiping out, killing all the men of Shechem... The rest of the brothers come in and start looting everything that's in the city. They start stealing everything from kids to wives to servants to sheep to flock, you know, herds. Everything that's there, they steal it all. They take it all and they say, this is what you deserve because of what you've done to our sister. Now, I give you that background for this reason. Go back to chapter 37. Chapter 37 they go to Shechem uh, to take the flocks, to pasture the flocks. And Israel, Jacob says to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send you to them. And Joseph said, I will go. He says, Look, they're back down there at Shechem again. i got to know what these boys are up to. Joseph You're the only one that I can count on. and try. You get up there and find out what your brothers are doing. By the way, I think I've got a picture of this. Uh, Brody, do you have the map for me? Let me give you this so that you can see it. Well, it's kind of hard to see, and I didn't bring uh, my laser pointer in here. But Shechem is down. Do you all see where it says Judah right there? Uh, Well, down this way is Hebron. That's where they are. That's where Jacob is. That's where the boys were. They're, they're down that way in Hebron. Uh, by the way, that's where Abraham and Sarah are buried. Isaac and uh, Rebekah are buried there. And uh, uh, Jacob and Leah are buried in Hebron. They left Hebron and they went up. Do you see uh, Ephraim right there? Well, if you just go right up the middle of this map, you see Shechem right up in the middle there, which says West Manasseh and Ephraim, right between those two, that's where Shechem is. He's going to walk and travel about 60, 70 miles from Hebron here in the south all the way up to Shechem. You can kind of just leave it there. He, he's going to go all that way to find them because Jacob is concerned. Um, he's concerned that maybe some other Canaanites have come in now. They found out what had happened and who did it. And and he's concerned that they're going to turn on his boys and uh, kill his boys. So he sends Joseph up there. Go find out about these brothers of yours and come back and tell me what's going on. I'm concerned with them. Now go back to the text, verse 14. Then he said to them, Go now and see about the welfare of your brothers, the welfare of the flock. Bring word back to me. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man, look at verse 15, and I'm going to tell you, tuck this verse away until I come back to it in a little bit on down the road. A man found him. We don't know the man's name. We don't know where the man came from. Uh, We don't know where the man is going. Uh, And behold, he was wandering in the field. And the man asked Joseph, what are you looking for? What are you looking for? And Joseph said to him, I'm looking for my brothers. Please tell me where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, now how he knew this is a curiosity to me. How he overheard this conversation is strange. Curious to me. The man said, they have moved from here, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers, and he found them at Dothan. Now, if you come back to this map, stay right in the middle of the land of Israel, and you just go just a little ways on north of Shechem, about 10 or 12 miles, you'll come to the place called Dothan. Um. It's right there at the Jezreel Valley or the valley that most of us know and call the Valley of Armageddon, Armageddon, or the Jezreel Valley, or the Valley of Megiddo, or the Plains of Esdralian. You just choose whatever you want. You call it whatever you'd like to call it. And there you go. So he's there, this man, who nobody knows. We have no clue where he came from, have no clue where he's going, don't know how he got this information. And uh, he said, they've gone up to Dothan, and so Joseph takes off and he goes up to Dothan. Now, I've just got to ask you a question, and this is the way I think whenever I'm studying Scripture. Why did we get all that information? What's, what, in, what in the world? We get so much information here. He's left now Hebron, going up to Shechem. He gets up to Shechem, finds a man. The man tells him they've gone up to Dothan. Now he says they're up there in Dothan. He takes off and goes to Dothan. Man, there are passages in Scripture I want to know. Why don't we get a little more insight into? Why in the world did we get this whole travel log here? Am I the only one that asks that? I mean, do you look at that and think, you know, that's a lot of detailed stuff. Do you think it's just there to fill up space, or do you think the Holy Spirit's saying something? Now, I want you to watch this. They were at Hebron. Hebron means associate. We would translate it Fellowship. Hebron, I just told you, is where all the patriarchs are buried. Abraham and Sarah, Deborah and I were there just a couple of years ago. Um, we, we ha- you, it's Palestinian territory. We had a good day where we could slip in there. Were y'all with us? Y'all were with us. Some of y'all were with us. And we, just had, we don't often go down to Hebron because they usually will stone you if you go in there. Uh, so we generally don't go. Um <laughs> But we got down there. We were able to get in that day, and we got down there. Abraham and Sarah are buried there. Uh, Isaac and Rachel are buried there. Uh, Jacob and Leah are buried there as well. And uh, there's a great big synagogue down there. Anyway, um, it means associate, to associate. We would say to fellowship. Good Baptists would say the name of that place is to fellowship. It was a place of fellowship. It was a place where the people of the one true living God came together, and there was this fellowship of those who worship Jehovah. Now listen, these boys who cared nothing at all about God left the place of fellowship, and they go to the place of Shechem. Now, Shechem was very important as well. It was a very important spiritual center. It was where God came and cut the covenant with Abraham back, I think it's in Genesis chapter 15, where he makes that covenant with Abraham. And the pot passes through. You remember that night, the darkness that fell, Abraham, it goes. Uh, to sleep. He's sacrificed these animals and laid them out. That, that's all at Shechem. Shechem is a word in the Hebrew that means shoulder. And out of shoulder, you get the word strength. Now, Hebrew is a visual language. I, I give this illustration all the, time, all the time. The word for cat in Hebrew means to curl around, because cat will come and curl around your leg. It's, it's, it's word pictures, So the word shoulder is understood as strength. And you say, well, how do you get strength out of shoulder? Put your shoulder into it. Push, work. You're putting your shoulder in. This is your strength right here. It was a place of spiritual strength. It was a place where you would go and there you would meet with God and you would come out with spiritual strength, but these boys were not concerned with spiritual strength. In fact, it's in Shechem, the very place where you could draw spiritual strength is where Simeon and Levi left spiritual strength and slaughtered all of these Canaanites there, these Hivites that were there. It's a place where Reuben is going to enter into incest with Jacob's wife, who was a concubine, but you can say what you want to. Uh, It works out to be a wife. It's where Judah is going to do the same thing with his daughter-in-law. He's going to go off into sin. So it's a place where these boys, they've left the place of fellowship, they've left the place of spiritual strength, and they go to Dothan. And Dothan is known in Hebrew as two whales, W-E-L-L-S, two whales. But the place is covered with broken cisterns. That's what they're going to throw this boy in, a broken cistern. Now, a cistern is a thing to catch water in. It is a—you dig out a cistern, you find these things all over Israel— uh, the opening in the, in the rock, in the lime rock, um, is, um, is about the size that you could put a man down. You could take a man, so it's about this big. You can just put a man down in the mouth. But when you get down into it, they have carved out what would be like a big room, or a, it would look like the inside of a big jug. It could be 15, 20 feet deep. And all the water would run off into that, and that's where they kept caught and would keep water. Now, I'm going to take you, or I'm going to quote to you, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. My people have committed two evils against me. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and have hewed out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Now, that's Dothan. Do you get the picture of what the Holy Spirit is doing when he gives you this travel log right here? you begin to see that, how it fits together? What they're doing, they're walking away from everything spiritual. They're going to a place that is absolutely dry spiritually, a place of no spiritual life whatsoever. Why? Because sin is comfortable there. So you get this unusual travel log right here. And these boys end up in a place where there is a broken cistern that holds no water. Well, let me get back to Joseph. He travels about 60 miles or so uh, from Hebron up to Shechem and then about 10 or 12 miles uh, from Shechem on up to Dothan. And uh, look at what the text says beginning in verse 18. When they saw him from a distance. Now, notice, notice how the Holy Spirit is inspiring this. They see him at a distance. Before he can come close to them, they begin to plot against him to put him to death. Now, at a distance, you can see. Now, you're you're down. You're up in that area. I, you, you can see forever, it seems like, up there. There's nothing to impede the vision. You can look way on down the road, and you can make out somebody moving, something moving, And as it comes closer, you can begin to see it's the shape of a man. But how did they know this was Joseph at that great of a distance? The coat. The coat. The tunic that his father had given him. Way off in the distance, they could not mistake. Nobody had anything like that. They could look and they could see this boy coming and they could say... (laughs) There is Joseph right there. Now, when he gets here, what are we going to do? We're going to kill him. We're going to put him to death. That's our dream. He's got dreams. We got a dream. Our dream is we're going to put this kid to death. Now, um, he gets there. They said one to another. Here comes the dreamer. Now when they, when the, Now, then, come and let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. That's one of those broken cisterns a wild beast devoured him. They're they're plotting, they're planning, they're getting their story together. Now watch this. But Reuben heard this and rescued him out of their hands, saying, "Let us not take his life." Reuben further said to them, "shed no blood. Throw him into this pit that is in the wilderness." But don't lay hands on him that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. Now, Reuben, bless his heart, he sins so great. This is a good thing. He has a good heart here. You see what he wants to do. He says, y'all put him in the pit. When I get them out of here, I'll go back. I'll get the boy out of the pit and take him back to daddy. But the sin in his life is so great (laughs) that you can't ever see any good that Reuben ever does. Sin can do that, right? You remember that line out of uh, uh, Julius Caesar, Shakespeare? Anthony comes and he says, uh, friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ear. I've come to bury Caesar not to praise him. Uh, The good that uh, the evil that men do lives on after them, the good oft interred with their bones. So let it be with Caesar. Brutus hath said, Caesar was ambitious. If it is so, it is grievously ill, and Caesar has grievously paid for it. I'm sorry, I've lapsed into Shakespeare. Um, I've always dreamed of being a Shakespearean actor. But you, you heard what Anthony said, don't you? The evil that they do lives on after them. The good often turd with their bones. Well, that's true of Reuben, and it's true in life, and it's true with us. And that's just the point I'm making here, is that we can sow sin in our lives. That's all that is ever said about us. I was reading about If I mentioned his name, if I mentioned his church, everybody here would automatically know him. He's not in the state of Alabama, so I'm not talking about anybody here. But I was looking up something for some reason about him today and and got to looking back. He's just recently, in the last several years, left ministry. He did a lot of good things. A lot of people went to a lot of his seminars. A lot of people tried to copy what he was doing up at uh, his church and, um, and yet now, there's not one thing about any of that uh, that you can find. All you can find is about uh, what he did that was sin. And sin in our lives can rob the good that we do. Well, that's Reuben. Let me get off of Reuben. I'm, I don't know why I wanted to go off on that, but... Reuben says that, but they're not going to do it. Do you know why they're not going to do it? Because they know the sin that Reuben is in. And Reuben thinks it's a secret. But even among thieves, they have no honor. Isn't that right? Even among these boys who are all sinners in a very dry place spiritually, they don't want anything to do with what Reuben says because of the sin in his life. Isn't that amazing? Well... Now, Judah is going to speak up. Judah's going to talk uh, when he gets there, and he's going to say, let's sell him. But watch at what happens. Joseph reached his brothers, verse 23. And what did they do? The first thing they did was what? They stripped that tunic off of him. Uh, I imagine with great relish, they just ripped it off of him. They tore it off of him. They stripped Joseph of his tunic, the varia-colored tunic that was on him, and they took him and they threw him into the pit. Now, the pit was empty. No water was in it. Why? It's a broken cistern. You're in a spiritually dead, spiritually dry place. And then what do they do? They sit down to eat. Doesn't bother them one bit. Now, I'm going to show you what's going on in the middle of this, but you've got to go to chapter 42 of Genesis to see. Chapter 42 of Genesis, Joseph is already second in command of of Egypt, which is the great empire of the world, the then known world at that time. He knows who his brothers are. They don't have a clue who he is. We're going to get there one day. And um, he has devised a plan. He wants to see his youngest brother, Benjamin, his full brother. And so you know the story. He tells them. Okay, listen, if you're telling me the truth, you'll leave one of you here with me, and you guys will go back, and you'll get your younger brother, and you will bring him back here. And in doing that, I'll know that you're being honest. You're telling me the truth. So Simeon, boy, oh, Simeon, what, what a piece of work he was. He gets to be the guy that stays behind. Well, when, when Joseph says this to his brothers, all of a sudden, man, they begin to panic we got to go back and tell Daddy. we got to go back and tell Israel. we got to go back and tell Jacob that we had to leave Simeon in jail down here in Egypt. And the only way we can get him out is to take Benjamin back down there and show him. And, and I can tell you, Daddy's not going to do it. It's not going to happen. We're in a bad situation. Now watch at what they do. When they get in a really bad situation, where does their mind go? It goes back to the sin of doing what they did to their brother. Listen to this. Verse 21, Genesis chapter 42. Then they said to one another, Truly, we are guilty concerning our brother. Isn't that wild? Nobody had even mentioned Joseph. Nobody was talking about him. Let me tell you something. That's what you call the conviction of the Holy Spirit right there. When something happens to you, what pops up in your mind? Some sin in your life that you have nursed and babied and fed and taken care of, kept warm, and you think, I'm going through this because of that sin. That's the first thing they thought. Truly, we are guilty concerning our brother because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen, therefore this distress has come upon us. That's what he was doing when they threw him down in that pit and they sat down. I'm back in chapter 37, verse 25. They sat down to eat a meal. Joseph was crying out of that cistern. He was hollering, let me out. Come on, guys. Don't do this to me. It didn't, it didn't, I'm not comfortable down here. I'm afraid down here. Do you know that archaeologists tell us that they have found cisterns all over the Middle East with bones, human bones in them? People fell in it or they were put in it like Joseph and left there and they died. He's calling out. He's in distress. I would imagine while they were sitting around eating, it didn't bother them. They probably made fun. They probably were mocking him. They were, they were crying back to him the same things he was crying out to them. And so there he is in that pit crying out. And now, listen to what they say. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. The same distress that Joseph was going through is coming out here. Now, here is the principle. You mean, I, let me just give it to you in good old country, South Carolina, country boy, where you can understand it, your chickens will come home to roost. <laughs> you just count on it. Now, I could give it to you in a lot different way, but let me tell you, their dream, they said, here comes this dreamer. My dream is we're going to kill this kid, and their dream now has turned into an absolute nightmare. Now, let me show you two things. My time's getting away. I've got to hurry up. Number number one, the interesting thing is this. You know how this story's going to go. Judah's going to come. He's going to say, here here are the Midianites, here are the Ishmaelites. They really actually sell him to the Ishmaelites. uh, And somehow the Midianites get him. They come along at the same time. And um, the Ishmaelites are the descendants of Ishmael, the son of Abraham by Hagar. The Midianites are the descendants of Abraham and Keturah. Uh, After Sarah dies, he has uh, another wife, Keturah. They have children. The Midianites come from These are all cousins. These are all cousins. And uh, Judah says, let's sell him. Let's make some money on him. They sell him. And now what are we going to do? They've got that cloak. And so they take Joseph's tunic, verse 31, they slaughter a male goat and they dip the tunic in the blood and they sent the very colored tunic and brought it to their father and said, we found this. Please examine it. See whether it's your son's tunic or not. Now they don't tell him anything. They'd already plotted what they were going to tell him. They'd already planned what they were going to do, that a wild beast tore him apart. But they just bring it in, and I imagine his reaction is so strong, they don't say anything. And here is Jacob, and Jacob says, he's been torn to pieces by wild animals. Now, here these brothers tell them, well, we didn't say anything. We didn't tell him that. He believed, that's just, we just let him believe what he wanted to believe. We're not ultimately, you know, we're kind of innocent and all this. That's what daddy believed, and we were not going to try to tell daddy any different. Now, here's the interesting thing to me, is that Jacob, I'm telling you, your chickens will come home to roost. It was Jacob who took the hair of a goat to deceive his daddy. And now his boys have taken the blood of a goat to deceive him. Well, the second thing is this. Let me read this first before I tell it to you. All these boys come in. They're standing there. Joseph examined it and said, It's my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. So Jacob tore. Right there now, here are these boys standing around him. And Jacob reaches up and he takes right here and he just rips his garment. And he sits down and he puts sackcloth around him. And I imagine he throws dust and ashes all over himself. And he begins to mourn. He begins to weep. Then all the sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted. And he said, Surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. I'll never get over this. I'll never get beyond this. I'm going to live with this for the rest of my life. I will go down to my grave mourning for this boy. So his father wept before them. And here are all these boys Now listen, you know this. I loved my daddy. I loved my daddy. (sighs) Boy, there were times I'd get in things. I know it would upset my dad. And more than anything else in life, I did not want to upset my dad. Not because I didn't want him to discipline me. I didn't want my dad to be upset. And these boys have surrounded their dad with what they've done. And their dad is completely falling apart. And it must have been running through their mind. I had no idea he would take it this hard. I had no idea that he would, he would respond like this. And what was my dream has now become my nightmare. Because I have let sin lead me. Jiminy Cricket. Let me hasten to the second thing. I have 19 seconds left. That's point one. Point two is this when the Lord leads us, our nightmares become. The providence of God. Now let me just quickly move you back over here to verse 23. Came about when Joseph reached his brothers, they stripped him of the tunic, the very colored tunic that was on him. They took him, threw him in the pit. Now the pit was empty without any water in it. They sit down to eat. He's lowered down into this cistern. The Ishmaelites come by. Verse 28. The Midianite traders passed by as well. So they pulled him up, lifted Joseph out of the pit. Now, I'm going to show you something. Look at this verse 28. Three times the proper noun, Joseph, is used. Now, in the NASB, it's used twice, but I'm going to show you where the third time is uh, in this verse some Midianite traders passed by, so they pulled him up and lifted Joseph, that's number one, out of the pit, sold him, now in the Hebrew, it's not him, it's the proper noun, Joseph, sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. Three times his name is used in that one verse, and I'm going to tell you why. It is a way of... of of letting the reader know God is doing something with this boy. Joseph, 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 it is a way to let you know that God is at work in this whole situation. As horrible as it is, as bad as it is, as tragic and sad as it is, God is at work in this. Well, I don't see it. I don't understand it. You don't have to see it. You don't have to understand it. All you need to know is God is sovereign. He's at work. Here is the providence of God. Now, let me show you something here to catch us up, and then I'll let me end this. When you look at Joseph, what you're seeing is such a picture of the coming Messiah. He leaves the Father's house to find his brothers that are lost. And on the way to save them, there is an unknown person who speaks. Sounds like the Holy Spirit to me. And gives direction to the lost. He goes to his own, and his own receives him not. They strip him Of his tunic, and they intend to put him to death. Man, I'm telling you something. God has been setting humanity up since the dawn of creation to say, I have a Messiah coming to save your life. Well, in the providence of God, here's the interesting thing to me. He's down in that hole by himself. Yet God is at work. They sell him to the Ishmaelites. Somehow the Midianites get a hold of him. Verse 36, and meanwhile the Midianites sold him in Egypt. Now I want you to watch this. The man's name is given. We want to know Through history, who is Pharaoh at this time? Doesn't even figure in to God's Word. It makes no difference. Isn't it interesting the little, tiny, small things that you'll find here that are significant when it gives Potiphar's name, it's letting you know this is in God's providential plan. He's going to this guy. Why is this guy's name given and you don't give the name of the president of the country or the president of the empire? Why? Because God says, look, I know exactly where I have maneuvered and put Joseph. And he's in the care of this guy, Potiphar, Pharaoh's official, captain of the bodyguard. He's got him in the hands of a guy who has all, he's got SEAL Team six that he's in charge of, and he's put Joseph in the middle of SEAL Team 6. Nothing is going to happen to Joseph. Isn't that something? Now, you got a problem God t- can't take care of tonight? No. You may can't figure it all out. You, it may not make a whole lot of sense to you. You may be in a quandary about it all, but the fact of the matter is, God knows exactly where you are. And he's got everything around you to take care of you. Five minutes and 22 seconds over. Here endeth the lesson. Okay. Now I'll take a question. Good. Well, evidently I explained it well. Let's pray. Father, thank you. We marvel. We just marvel at how you work and you weave in and out of the most difficult situations in our lives and yet your will is perfectly done. Even in the midst of sin, even in the midst of tragedy, even in the midst of what we are horrified to think about, you are at work and we are your children. And you love and care for us. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Amen. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.